Hi everyone, and welcome to Dr. Dark After Dark, episode 37, discussions with Jeff Schneider, who is the head of research at Alhambra Investments. So today we're gonna to do a totally different episode, and I'm super excited by it because I'm a complete geek, as everyone knows. We're gonna discuss next generation reserve currencies. We could, we don't know where this is gonna go, but we might end up talking about energy or time or maybe much more boring mundane ones. And so, you know, Jeff's widely known on you know, financial Twitter, you know, and, and in the industry, he's an expert on the monetary system, probably best known for his euro dollar analysis and the excellent euro dollar university, which I would recommend everyone watches. And that's with Emil Kalinowski, who was on the show a few weeks ago. And that's how we got introduced, because if the very keen listener might remember in this episode of Emil, we talked about this for about 20 seconds, then we sort of decided not to go down the rabbit hole. And he told me after, the person you need to speak to is Jeff. So, um, as always, it's not investment advice. Please do your own research. Jeff, welcome. How are you doing? Good. Thanks for having me, Chris. I'm really excited to be here and talk about this stuff. I think it's fair to say this is the one which I have absolutely no clue where it's going to go. So, I'm excited <laughs> by that. But a bit of background. Yeah, and I think that's perfect for the topic because, you know, we think of reserve currencies as, as settled stuff. Like, you know, it just is and it always will be. And yet, we, here we are, I think, in a in an era where it has been the, it's probably the least settle it's been in a very long time. Exactly. And so for a bit of background for those that haven't studied this, really there's been six, in the last 600 years, we've had six reserve currencies. It's moved from Portugal to Spain to Netherlands to France to UK to the US and very roughly 100 years a time. It's not exact, but it's roughly that. And the US dollar took over in about 1920, 1921, basically after World War I. So we've had a hundred years. So that's interesting. And there tends to be a bit of a transition period or a build-up period before a change. And this can often be 20 or 30 years. This doesn't happen overnight. Um, you know, and and you know, it'd probably be even more difficult now with the interconnectedness of the economy and all the technology. Um, but Jeff, why does it matter so much? Like, why do we care about the world's reserve currency? Well, you know, I think we have to ask ourselves first, uh, the, the real question is, what is a reserve currency? What does it do? And, that, and when, you realize, when you start step back and think, well, what does this thing for? What is it supposed to accomplish? Then you, the, the question answers itself because it's immediately apparent why it's so important. And really, a reserve currency allows the world to work, the modern world to work. Um, I think, you know, we, get, we maybe have a tendency to think of economics and economies as these closed systems that have very little linkages between each other. You know, they don't talk to each other. They don't, things don't move around that much. And that's just not true. And I'm not sure it's, if it's ever been that true. And, you know, we talk about globalization, for example, as if globalization is a new phenomenon. Well, it's not. You know, globalization has happened at various points throughout history. And as you pointed out, globalization, these trends of globalization usually match up with various currency regimes and changes in them. But essentially, a reserve currency allows very different systems to be able to interact with each other. And that's, an, that's a very powerful tool that allows for, you know, not just trade, but the, the exchange of ideas and uh, exchange of value and, and creation of wealth across systems, which has marked modern progress. So the way the reserve currency does that is, is it, it becomes an intermediary between these various systems that allows them to talk to each other and to transact with each other in a very efficient, flexible, dynamic way. And those are the key points. It has to be flexible, it has to be efficient, and it has to be very dynamic to allow, you know, I mean, 
humanity is very different across the entire world. And to allow each of these things, each of these systems, each of these you know point parts of the world to be able to work with each other in a seamless fashion, again, that's a really powerful thing. And that's that's why a reserve currency has been such a, a big issue for a very long time because it's such a it's such an important part of how the modern how the modern economy how the modern world actually gets its job done absolutely and so i mean do, do you think it's fair to say it's the most powerful weapon in the world weapon is a kind of a loaded term right it is, yes that's why <laughs> I, mean, I said it <laughs> yeah i know it is it's it's really we're talking I and mean, people talk about the us dollar in particular as an as you know it gives the united states an exorbitant privilege and i don't you know to me, when I step back and look at the way the reserve currency is now, it's not necessarily a privilege, but a burden. And I think that uh, most people who have studied the, the reserve currencies would agree with that. You know, we'll go back to Triffin's paradox or Triffin's dilemma. You know, the U.S. dollar as a global, as a global currency rather than a national currency or a national currency trying to become a global currency actually was a huge problem for the United States. It wasn't a privilege. It was a problem. And I, th and I think in other ways, too, having the US dollar as the global reserve denomination is actually a, a, a burden rather than a privilege because it requires, um, and essentially in the, in, in the way it's uh, evolved since the 1950s under this Euro dollar system, it's required a whole lot of ignorance and not, being, not paying attention to what's going on to allow the system to work the way it has. And so, you know, it, it's, it's, you know, I know people think that it's a weapon and the U S uses it in foreign policy. And, you know, we're going to, we're going to cut off countries from the SWIFT system and all this other stuff. But in the bigger picture, it's, you know, I don't think it's so cut and dry as, Hey, the U S just uses the, uses the dollar for its own means. And I would argue that it's actually the other way around that the U S doesn't really use it at all. Maybe they use the threat of using the dollar, but in, in actuality, the Euro dollar system is, is in a lot of ways completely detached from American, uh, political presence yeah and i think that that's that, that last point is very important and is not discussed so much primarily because you know i guess it's well it's just not as well known and um even though of course the size of the euro dollar system is probably vastly larger so um yeah and i think that's you know we're stop you know what is a reserve currency reserve currency means you know we got to have all of these dollars throughout the world so that it can do the it can fill all the roles that we need the global reserve currency to fill. But the way it does that, and the way that it has evolved is that it has evolved outside of the official US presence. You know, it's banks talking to each other, trading liabilities and assets back and forth, denominating US dollars. But a lot of times these are not banks that have anything to do with the United States. It might be, you know, a bank in Switzerland transacting with a bank in Hong Kong or Singapore, for example. And, you know, even though they're US dollar liabilities and assets going back and forth between them, it has nothing to do with the U.S. government, has nothing to do with the Federal Reserve. And the only thing that really governs those transactions are the two banks that are transacting in it or the wider marketplace. And so it's, it's a bank-centered system, which means that, you know, the U.S. government, the Federal, even the Federal Reserve has very little influence over what happens in that system, as we've seen since August of 2007 when it broke down and the Fed has been pretty much powerless to do much about it. So, you know, looking at it as a bank-centered system, you start to see more of the burden rather than any sort of privilege. And I think the privilege that's been claimed is more so, you know, theoretical privilege than anything else. In reality, it's more of this, you know, the system we don't really, we don't really pay much attention to. Hardly anyone knows many details about it. 
And oh, by the way, the Federal Reserve is really, really has no authority or no, no, no operating uh, capacity to go into it. Right. Yeah. No. Got it. And what if, I mean, so U.S. dollars. I mean, I'm going to use a term that's probably not a good term, but it's sort of owned by America. Although, of course, we've just used the whole euro dollar system as an example, which isn't owned by the U.S. But my question is, like, would it make a difference if it wasn't just kind of one country's currency? So it might be along the lines of. Uh, special drawing rights, which I know China's bought up recently, and, and actually quite a few others, um, or indeed if it was gold or energy or Bitcoin or, you know, it doesn't really matter what it is, but if it was um, kind of smeared across lots of different countries that are kind of responsible for the underlying currency, um, you know, is that kind of a direction it could go or is that sort of just complicated and crazy? No, and I think, you know, going back to Bretton Woods in 1944, when we got to really the dollar-based system, um, you know, John Maynard Keynes and Harry Dexter White, who was the, the primary American negotiator, Keynes in particular wanted, he realized, look, you have national currencies, but what we're really talking about in this modern post-war world is a global currency. We need something that maybe isn't a national currency. And so he suggested something called Bancor, yep. which would be an, a, a truly international or supranational currency because he realized that there's a natural tension between a national currency and a global reserve currency that would cause all sorts of problems, as it did. I mean, the Bretton Woods system really only lasted about 16 years. By 1960s, it had defaulted with the formation of the London Gold Pool because national currencies just they don't fit the role really well for a global reserve. And even historically speaking, you go back to the British pound era, for example, you know, the British pound was great throughout the British Empire block but not so great outside of the empire block. And so even though the British pound was a dominant reserve currency in its age, it wasn't a total global currency in the way that we think of the way, especially the euro dollar system has been able to do it since then. So the idea is, you know, do we have this natural tension between a national currency and a supranational currency? Should we be moving toward a supranational currency, which would be something kind of different? And if it's something kind of different, I think that opens the door to what we're really talking about here is what would that even look like? Would it be a commodity-based currency instead of a, you know, instead of a basket of you know, SDRs, yuan, yen, whatever, maybe a basket of commodities. Maybe it's tied to something like that. I mean, once you start thinking beyond national currencies, I think that opens the door into a whole different range of possibilities. Right. And I think it was, I think it was Jeremy Rifkin said, um, something along the lines of money after all is nothing more than stored energy credits. And he's a U.S. economist. <laughs> yeah. And I just, that's I a good way it. to put it. Right. I mean, that's what it's a, the store value functions is really what it's supposed to be. You know, I labor all day. I get paid on Friday. Now I have cash and it's really, you know, represents their tokens essentially that represent my, my expended effort. Okay. So let's get into the meat of it. So it's a natural segue. So what could, so I guess the point of this is we're not trying to say that tomorrow the US dollar is going to not be relevant. That's not the point of this episode, right? It's to open our minds, to think a bit non-linearly, to, to think into the what might not be lifetimes away. You know, it could be in our lifetime. It may be in 10 years. We, we don't know. Um, in the past, often there's been wars that have transitioned reserve currencies, and let's hope that's not the case. Um, but what could be after the US dollar? Well, I mean, what's actual, actually plausible, not like the super crazy stuff, but what do you think actually could work? Well, you know, hey, before we answer that question, let's back up a minute. Why can't it be tomorrow? I think, that's a, I think it's important to spend a couple of minutes on that, that, that okay, yeah, no, that's particular good function because it goes back to 
you know, why are the reserve currency so important? What does it really mean? You know, this euro dollar system I talk about has been malfunctioning for the last 13 years. The Chinese hate it. The Russians hate it. You know, everybody seems to hate the dollar and we keep hearing about how the dollar is going to re be replaced. And the reason why we keep hearing that is because the system doesn't work. It's been a drag on economic growth ever since the first global financial crisis. And it hasn't been able, you know, the Federal Reserve certainly can't solve the problem. And nobody's been able to solve the problem, yet it still exists. And the reason it still exists, <clears throat> excuse me, and the reason why we're not expecting the dollar system, even the Chinese are not expecting the dollar system to be replaced tomorrow, the euro dollar system to be replaced tomorrow is because it's not that easy. You have to be able to, you know, there's, there's a whole a range of functions that need to take place. There's a whole lot of infrastructure. There's a whole lot of, you know, sophistication markets and all these, you know, capacities that have to be built out and developed in order to get these dollars which are you know virtual currency already to get these virtual euro dollars across the world in the way that we need them to be, so it's not it's a very difficult, involved, and lengthy process to develop a competing currency system. I mean, look, the euro dollar system developed ad hoc over many decades, and, and that's how you know it got to be as widespread as it was, and but this got to, got to be for a while there as good as good as it was in fostering globalization and global trade because it's a very deep sophisticated, uh, very large, very complex system. And so that's what we're really talking about is, you know, it's not very simple. It's, you just can't go from A to B. You have to put all these things in place in order to even think about B. So, it, you know, that's, I, th I think it's important to understand that, you know, global reserve currency, first of all, very important role, very important to the global economy. And second of all, the way in which it works isn't so simple. Right. And um, the way, I th yeah, I agree with that. The way I think of it is kind of, as a human, we can have a blood transfusion. It happens all the time to people. Um, and they, and that's kind of, so you can get some, basically someone else's blood put in. But what they don't do is change all your veins and arteries, i.e. the pipes. Yeah. <laughs> that's a good, right, exactly. I mean, that yeah, really I doesn't It's a really good analogy. And that's sort of what would have to happen if we went, not, not if you moved from kind of dollars to, I'm just going to say pounds for the sake of argument. Like, it doesn't matter. Um, then that's probably easier. But going to a basket or indeed something more esoteric, whether it be commodity or something else, then you'd have to change the pipes. So I suspect that's why it's, well, for sure now would be kind of a 20, 30 year process. Um, but um, yeah. All right, so what do we think could be next? This is the fun part. <laughs> well, yeah, and I mean, what we're really talking about is a, is a lot of different issues kind of converging into a single point, right? I mean, we're talking about first, what is, one of the roles of a reserve currency is to match monetary demand with supply, right? And that's really what the banking system or the euro dollar system has been able to do. So you have to, you have, to have some way of redistribution, getting monetary resources to move, because that's really the important part of the, of the currency is filling demand. We want, you know, there's demand for all, there's demand to do all sorts of things. And we have to have a system in place that allows for that to take place, for allows redistribution to be done on a very efficient base, basis. And the banking system, you know, for all its faults and for all its warts and for all its well-earned scorn actually does that really well. So a bank-centered system, the euro dollar, which is really a virtual currency, has performed that redistribution role pretty well. It just kind of got out of hand there in the, in the middle 2000s there, you know, during the housing bubble in the US and a lot of different credit bubbles elsewhere. So number one, we, we wanna be able to match 
the primary task is to be able to match efficiently money demand with money supply. And that's, that's not an easy thing to do. Second of all, I mean, what could, uh, you know, again, what we're really talking about in, is tokens. It's these, these, you know, it doesn't have to be gold. It doesn't have to be, I mean, it can be a virtual currency. It can be pretty much anything we want, but in that token is essentially embedded a, the rules of the game. You know, everybody knew in the gold standard what gold represented because it was a very transparent and open. And everybody understood that when I give you a gold coin or when a gold coin moved from, the, from New York to London, for example, what that meant. And so there, you know, money, money is a representative token of the rules of the game. And so we wanna embed in whatever the next, next generation of you know, potential currency could be, a very transparent way of doing things. That's one of the things the Euro dollar system has done very poorly is that because it's a bank centered system, because it's been operating outside of the official bright lights for so long, hardly anyone knows what goes on in it. And so it's, it's really the opposite of a transparent currency system. And we really don't even have any idea what these banks are doing at any given time. And, uh, um, and that's, a, that's a major hindrance and a major stumbling block, especially when it gets into a period where uh, it doesn't work very well. So we wanna match demands, redistribution, demand versus supply, but do so in a very transparent way in which everybody who participates in the system understands the rules that are going on behind it. And so what does that narrow the list down to? <laughs> I don't think it narrows the list down at all. I think it opens up the possibilities. I mean, it also- Many number of things. Right, and it also, I mean, you know, I, I, I've been long interested in blockchain and, um, you know, and, it gives away that, and again, I'm not necessarily saying Bitcoin here. I'm just saying that the concept, if you want transparency, blockchains are great for that. Um, and so, you know. Yeah, I think, you know, when you look at block, again, you're right. I, Bitcoin is, you know, the first one through the door and it's, it's you know, it's a novel idea. And I think there's a lot of value in the technology and developing and testing the, the blockchain and all that stuff. But blockchain technology, you know, speaking blockchain generically, yes. um, it has the potential to essentially erase the banking system because exactly. really what is a bank nowadays a bank is nothing more than a glorified ledger it's, a, it's an accounting firm uh, yes it does some intermediation but i would even argue even that's more automated nowadays than not so a bank is really a, a special privileged accountant and a blockchain can replicate those functions easily very efficiently i think you know newer you know later generations of it that become more all-encompassing so you look at blockchain as it's not just essentially maybe a currency, but essentially uh, exchanging out or, or replacing the entire banking system, you know, making it so again, which to me would be make everything more apparent. So there's tremendous opportunity here to really rewrite the way things are done and do so in a way where, which could be open and transparent and more uh, readily understood by the general public, which is, I think, what we really need to work toward. Right, absolutely, and um, and it's interesting. You know, the first use case of well, beyond just just Bitcoin being Bitcoin, you know, I would argue the first, and it's not mainstream yet, use case for blockchain has been this decentralized finance movement, um, which is the very very early days. Um, and actually, in some ways, it is like I talked about the blood transfusion. Moving to a blockchain based system is actually changing the veins in the arteries. Um, and yeah, absolutely. I think it's a it, it's it's it's, very, it's not just a meaningful change; it's a categorical change. And that's an important point because, you know, look, that's, I think what we need to go to and look at the, you know, money itself as a commodity, money itself as is a, is a, is a important component in the free market capitalist system. We always want to introduce the element of competition. 
Again, this, I think that's one of the things the Eurodollar system has done wrong is that it's, it's essentially operated by a cabal of, of bankers. And I don't mean, you know, a, you know it's, it's an ad hoc network and all that stuff, but it's, it's a very limited group of banks that are able to participate in it. And so that has slowed down the competition element for, to a certain extent. I think what we want of a new age currency, if you use that term, is competition. We want competing ideas across, you know, that's, that's the, the best parts of decentralization is that you have competing ideas that are able to be negotiated and need to be transacted so that, you know, the good stuff comes to the front and people accept the good stuff as it becomes available instead of making, you know, people at the top making decisions about what they think is good, what they think works, when in fact it may not work and it may not be good. So competition and you know, free market decentralization are I think important points. And I'm not sure that we've ever had in history the opportunity to do something like that, to be able to have such a bottom up kind of monetary focus that I think would, you know, it has a lot of really good potential. It also has a lot of bad potential too. But you know, those, you gotta take the good with the bad, right? Right, but that's a really important point when you said decentralization because that doesn't just have to uh, be in relation to the point that a blockchain is decentralized. One example, if I think, you know, if we were 200 years more advanced or even hundred years, who knows, or, or if we think of a civilization in our universe with the same laws of physics that was one or 200 years ahead of us, they're probably not going to be mucking around with fiat currency. I'm, I'm pretty sure they'll be using energy um, because it's why, because it can be, um, decentralized in its generation and storage. Um, it can be used to create things of value, for example, gold, Bitcoin, or equivalents, things like that. Um, and actually could also be linked up with say concepts of blockchain and that type of decentralization. Um, and, and so I was trying to do, and I did that thought experiment because, you know, sometimes thinking a long way in the future kind of, you know, allows you to kind of think a bit more freely. Um, and there've been several people have, you know, come up with this idea before, um, you know, middle ground in some ways is kind of commodities. Um, and, um, but I, I just, I just really don't think that the answer to this is even though politicians would want to maybe go to a basket of fiat currencies or whatever, like, I think to your point, there's just the technology exists now to, to take a step change and to make a real leap that makes the system and the pipes and everything better. Um, yeah, well, I think the idea is a really interesting one because of, you know, energy is predictable, right? And that's really what we're talking about, transparent, decentralization, competition, and all those other things is, you know, it sounds messy and it is, but really what we want of a monetary system or what makes the best kind of global reserve currency, again, the intermediation between various different systems is it's, if it's predictable, it's dependable, it's stable, right? That's what we really want. And I think, you know, the idea of using some kind of form of energy is getting toward that idea. You know, fiat currencies are, are inherently unstable, inherently unpredictable, especially when you add a political element to it, then it becomes even worse. And those are the, you know, we want them, we want, we want the global reserve currency to be something we don't really think about. I know that's, that's kind of strange because the Euro dollar system, hardly anybody, especially in America, hardly anybody even thinks about the dollar system now yet. I think uh, what we really want to, to, to have happen is them to have re a good reason not to think about the global recurrence, the global currency system rather than pure ignorance. And the reason is because if you're not thinking about the monetary system, it just works dependably. 
then we're spending all our time thinking about real, real economic factors, you know, innovation, technology, advanced growth, productivity. We're not worried about so much, you know, hey, do we have to hedge against the currency? Do we have to hedge against, you know, some political force intervening in a central bank? Do we have to hedge against central bankers who can never seem to get anything right? You know, we waste a lot of time and effort on unnecessary financial factors when we could a predictable, transparent monetary system would allow us to focus our energy, I use that term, you know, pun intended, in the more productive way, in a more productive capacity. So I think, you know, the idea of some kind of predictable, transparent currency, whatever that might be, where everybody knows the rules, and more than that, you know, the rules are embedded within the currency itself. And again, that's, you know, getting toward blockchain and digital technology. That's really, I think, more of an ideal situation. I don't know if it's a perfect situation, but it's certainly a lot more ideal than what we have now. Right, and and I was I kind of came up with a concept on it, which I don't know if this is complete lunacy, but like I kind of thought, well, you know, you can use energy to in 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 effect you use energy to create gold and Bitcoin. I mean, that's not controversial. And there are two things that people say do have value: an ounce of gold is worth two thousand bucks, and Bitcoin's ten thousand bucks, whatever it is, and that's kind of interesting. Um, and that's sort of almost like if you just think of your, your own personal finances, you might have a savings account and a checking account. And that's kind of stuff you can have in your savings account. Um, but then if you're kind of going around, you need to pay for something at Starbucks or whatever, you're using your checking account or your card or whatever. And it, what's kind of interesting is you start getting to these concepts of, well, instead of having a JP Morgan cre credit card, I might, I might be using some kind of... Um, energy cloud service that like maybe Exxon runs or a clean energy company or whatever it might be. And what's interesting is the banks get replaced by energy producers. Um, and even more interesting is you don't need central banks. Um, so it can kind of, and it's starting to get like a little more <laughs> esoteric now. Um, but you know, I think it's kind of um, some like really interesting concepts to dive into with that. So. Yeah. And I think that's really the, uh, uh, to me, a, a tremendous benefit is the, if you have a transparent, predictable system, you don't need the central bank. In fact, in my view, central banks are nothing more than a big, big problem and a big impediment to the, to the smooth function of the global financial system, not least of all because people tend to believe in the central bank as the most important part of the monetary system when, in fact, they are the least important part, yet the most vocal and the most, most prominent issue with it. So anything we can do to remove central banks and central bankers from the equation is a problem. The thing that, you know, that again, getting back to why central banks exist in the first place is that redistribution function. So that's an important part. Yeah, we want a predictable, stable currency, but yet we still have to solve the idea of getting money to move and where it needs to move and how to move. And I think, you know, decentralization and you think about, you know, replacing banks with blockchain, but then how does lending take place? How does borrowing take place? You know, and I think there's ways to do that. Even the way you're talking about, you know, if, if you have a checking account that's based on some kind of energy company, there's still a way that you can have a decentralized, say, micro lending platform that still that still replaces the the banking function, the the lending and credit function of a bank, as well as the payment function, which is you know two separate things there. And so you know, there's potential to do all these things without the way we do things now to really get rid of the central bank system, to get rid of the centralized monetary system and to get into a more decentralized state that does, again, predictability, transparency, there are things that we really need. And I think really make the system work the best. Right. Yeah. And, and that, that's what, 
I think it's that, again, the magic words, decentralization of the actual production of the currency. And, and so if you can, you can create energy, for example, and that doesn't mean you're counterfeiting it. That's fine. It's like not a problem. It's not like counterfeiting a dollar. Um, and then, of course, decentralization of storage, um, you know, i.e. the savings accounts. That's interesting. Um, and it, it kind of led me to this. I'm getting a bit Star Trek-y now, but like, and people are going to, some people are going to be rolling their eyes saying, Chris, this isn't going to happen. But there's a really interesting point in the future you have to take into account too, which is when we have, in effect, replicators. And there are companies working on this. So there's one called, uh, I think it's called MatterShift, and there's some other ones. And they're working on the 3D printing of actual molecules. So, you know, people thought 3D printing was insane 30 years ago. We can't do it. Well, now we th can 3D print pretty much anything. We can 3D print metals that can conduct and eventually we will be able to do this with um molecules and then we can actually replicate anything and in that scenario a, a basically reserve currency almost has to be something that cannot be physically printed so it actually has to be something that's um that's something like energy which you can't physically print or something like bitcoin or an equivalent that is you know in effect some form of algorithm um and this might not be, okay, this isn't happening tomorrow, but with the, the advances that are happening, you know, this century, you know, we, we could be in, you know, such a situation. So if these things are meant to last 100 years or more, uh, you know, we actually do have to think of some of these more crazy things. Yeah, well, I mean, look, we're, we've been in a virtual currency environment for a while now. And it's just, it, again, we've, we've, we've privileged the banking system to be able to tell us what's a real dollar, what's not a real dollar. Because they create that they create those dollars themselves, and they create again they create it without the Federal Reserve's help. They do it, you know, banks often they have nothing to do with the United States, but we've essentially said, you know, we've we've assigned them the ability to say, yes, I have dollars, and they do they do they say they have these dollars in very crazy and esoteric ways already. When you think about a currency swap or a basis swap or something like that, some kind of derivative transaction. It's really, I mean, it's it's very far removed from a dollar already. In a lot of ways, they're just creating them out of thin air. So, you know, it, it's, it's counterfeiting is, um, it's sort of whitelist, darklist, you know, white hat, black hat kind of stuff. When we're talking about a global reserve currency in that context, it's, it's really who is privileged to say they have dollars and create them and who isn't. Who do we trust to be able to do that? And I think in a more decentralized system, it's not necessarily let everybody decide who has dollars and who doesn't have dollars. But everybody knows the rules of how, where those dollars come from and where they don't come from. So it's not essentially about counterfeiting so much as it is about, you know, again, um, the intermediation function interspersed with predictability and transparency. It, it, and then you add to that context the ability of the digital world to, to more closely integrate with the physical world. And now you're really talking about uh, all sorts of open doors in all of these kinds of areas. And that's really, you know, you struggle with nonlinearity and thinking into the future and everything can go in one direction or another. It's really, it, I think that's, that's, I think the point we're trying to make here is that right now, because of the way the system is and the way it's been dysfunctional and the, the, the amount of promise and innovation that's already taken place in the technology that's available and where that could go pretty much anything is on the table right now. And it's really up to us as a society to get together and decide, you know, what are the general ideas that we want for this kind of currency system? What is the thing that we think will work the best? And then start thinking about them today, because as we said before, 
it's going to be a long time before we get get to a get to a position where we're able to take the euro dollar system and discard it and go to this next system but we need and i think that's the important point is right now the, everything is on the table almost anything is on the even the most outlandish stuff is a, I mean, we're sitting here talking about replacing the entire banking system with blockchain technology. And that's a realistic thing. But that's just, you know, what, what's the what's most, you know, the, the, the visible horizon in front of us, what we can see right now. What can what's what, what's beyond that? I mean, really, anything is on the table at this point. Exactly. And the way I look at it is if, if I look at Gen Z and millennials, um, and I think a big theme, and again, whether you believe in man-made climate change or not, uh, it doesn't really matter. The, the point is that I think most people can probably subscribe to the view that it would be nice to have clean air and clean water and this type of stuff. And, you know, we've, we've seen the ECB talk a lot about, well, mixing, basically having green bonds. Um, and and it, this may seem crazy to listeners, but there's a kind of theory on this, which is, if, if you're going down the energy route, this could lead to a much, much greener future. It's almost like the ultimate Green New Deal. And some people now are going to be going crazy. But um, because you'd have this massive efficiency drive and a huge technology investment for making clean energy, because that is actually the kind of the currency. Um, and you're going to have much less misallocation of capital. We're not going to need central banks. Government debt completely changes in, 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 in what it really is. Um, and, and maybe that's kind of, you know, I, I think in the next 10, 20 years, and the younger generations absolutely, do, uh, they care a lot more about looking after the planet than some of the older generations, let's say, on average. Um, and certainly outside of the US, much more. Um, so that might be a kind of catalyst. Um, I mean, it, it kind of sounds odd to think there might be a green catalyst for something to do with energy, but actually, you know, it could be if it's a, of the kind of very, very... Um, well, if it proves itself, right? I mean, that's the point. In a decentralized system, you have to prove yourself. Uh, in the privileged system, you don't have to prove yourself. And I think what you're talking about with ECB getting involved in climate change and green bonds is actually the opposite of what we want. Well, yeah, we don't sure. want central <laughs> bankers deciding what's privileged and what's not. We're trying to get away from that. We're trying to get to the situation. Hey, if, if green energy is the way to go, then it should be able to easily prove itself in, the, right. in a, in a decentralized exactly. environment. That's, I think that's the potential, right? right. The but things that's, that's, that we want to have happen, the things we want to go in, in the direction we want to go will bubble itself to the surface. And, you know, everybody will say, yes, that's the right idea. That's the where, you know, the, the system works the best. That's where, you know, innovation and productivity and technology can make the most money for people where, you know, those, the ideas that are the best. So, and, uh, you know, that happens when it's decentralized, it's transparent, and it's predictable. We don't have to worry about central bankers influencing the monetary or trying to or appearing to or even, you know, central banks at all. We don't have to worry about politicians setting, hey, we're going to privilege this industry or that industry. We're going to do this or that. No. If the idea is a good one, then it, then it becomes something that everybody, quote unquote, buys. Right. Exactly. And, and, and look, and just to illustrate for listeners, like a potential way this could happen with technology that we absolutely have right now that's already proven, you could have people generating energy in different parts of the world. They could have solar panels. They could be doing, they could be running a giant hamster wheel. It doesn't matter. Um, the point is there's already a way to put that into something that can be traded electronically, which is Bitcoin via mining. It's a bit harder with gold because you have to be somewhere that has gold in the soil. Um, I know there's gold in all seawater, but it's super hard to get it out. Um, and suddenly 
10 people start doing this, then 100 people, then 100,000 people, then a million people. And this is how bottom-up things can start. Um, and actually, the you know, whilst Bitcoin and blockchain stuff is still fairly niche in the world, it is exactly how it started. We don't even know who came up with it. Was it a person or them? Or, I know some people think governments did, but I've assured them it's far too clever for a government to have come up with it. So, <laughs> Exactly. There's no way that was a government project. <laughs> um, and you know, the point is, is though these things often innovate. Yes, yeah, sometimes ha innovation happens when a big company or government, you know, like getting the Apollo landings. Well, you know what? That was clearly a top-down, you know, uh, edict. But, but, but often, you know, awesome things happen completely bottom-up. And, you know, the internet's a good example of that. Um, so, you know, for those listening, it is possible and things can change. Um, and we actually don't even need to invent anything new to, to, to do a lot of this. Yeah, we're right on that cusp of a, a brand new paradigm because again, like I said, the, the, the old way of doing things isn't working. And I think what's, in, what's, what's I think, you know, really good about uh, technology in, in particular and you know, the way people use it is that, you know, I'm a Gen Xer, so my generation kind of had one foot in both sides, right? I, I grew up in the analog world but then I became an adult during the digital revolution. But generations that are following me and, and, and us, um, they're, they're going to be completely embedded. Their entire lives, their entire frame of reference is going to be digital. They're going to be, you know, internet people. You know, their, their, whole, their whole world, their whole frame of reference is online and in the internet and all, all that, you know, all that kind of really innovative technology. And so if we move in that direction anyway, the generations that are completely ensconced in, in, the, in that paradigm are going to be able to better, be, better able to use their own understanding of the way things work in a way that we don't understand the way things work and then come up with even better ideas than I could possibly imagine. What we're really trying to do is unlock something that's already been, that's, that's already, that's already been taking place for a long time already that hasn't been able to be unlocked because we're stuck in this old way of doing things because that's, you know, and largely because of inertia, right? It's, 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 it's the very uh, example of institutional inertia. We just do these things the way we do these things because that's the way we've always done these things. And now that it is, is that, that way of doing things causes, you know, I think really serious harm and it's, it's an impediment to economic growth and economic function we have the opportunity to, to finally go back and say, look, this stuff has been going on for decades already. We just haven't taken advantage of it. All we need to do is take advantage of it. And then all we need to do to take advantage of it is to realize that it's there and let the, let the, let the best ideas come to the forefront and let them take, let them lead the direction of we're going to take in the future. Right. And so I, th I think the concept that's coming to my mind is, you know, the idea of how do you get to a tipping point? Um, and like, so how can we practically like do this? I mean, there can be a bottom-up approach. I, I love that. But at the end of the day, in, in the past, and again, history, you know, obviously it, it, it doesn't repeat itself, but it often rhymes is a famous expression. Um, you know, traditionally there's been wars that kind of sorted this out. Um, and um, Wars are crisis, right? That's, that's really what it is in history. You have some major event that forces people to say, yeah, this isn't working. We need something new. You know, that, and that's always the, the hope is that we don't need to go down that road. And a lot of, I mean, there are, there are different, there are different periods where that didn't happen. I mean, look, the Eurodollar era, for example, took over in the 1960s without anybody really knowing it. Yeah. By the time the, the Nixon administration closed the gold window in 1971, it had already taken over. So in some ways it was kind of a seamless transition that people didn't know about. 
I mean, obviously it wasn't a, a, a crisis-free one because we had the great inflation of the 1970s that was in large part responsible to the monetary evolution. But, you know, there are, you know, Bretton Woods is, you know, Bretton Woods is probably the example where World War II, the Great Depression, everybody realized, hey, we got to do something different. So it's really about creating urgency to get people to realize this is a, this is a topic you need to understand. It's a topic that needs to, you know, demands attention from, demands serious attention from people because we're not getting it from politicians. We're certainly not getting it from central bankers who continue to claim that, hey, there's nothing wrong. We've, we've, done, that. we've done everything right. And it's to get the bottom up, the real good bottom up approach, it's going to require people realizing the way things are right now. Right. And um, I mean, another way I thought of it was, I, I'm sure you're familiar with Neil Howe's stuff on the fourth turning. Um, yep. And, you know, I, the way I simplify it for people is, you know, if we are coming up to kind of this human fourth turning, um, each, each turning is basically a generation. Well, a generation is 20 to 25 years times it by four. What do you know? You get to 80 to 100 years. That's exactly the same length as time as the long-term debt cycle. Um, it's about the same length as time that water reserve currencies exist for. Um, we're literally at that moment right now. Um, you know, the 2020s is probably the decade. Um, and, you know, it's... Um, All signs you know, point to yes, right? <laughs> Sorry? It started in 2008 with the you know, global right. financial crisis, yes. but ever since then, it's, it's really, you know, it's, it's intensifying to the point where we're thinking... Yeah, there, there, it's, it's, you know, we tried to cobble together some of these ad hoc QE type uh, solutions that just didn't work. And so it's, it's more and more, I think, if people really stop and look at the situation and stop trusting central bankers taking the word for it, they can start to see that, yes, the system, the, bar the paradigm is breaking down and we're moving towards something big. And something big doesn't have to be bad. That's the thing. It, you know, it sounds scary. Hey, Global reserve transition, international upheaval, massive crisis. It really doesn't have to be that way. We just have to be proactive. And the way we're being proactive is to think about the way things are right now and the potential of the way that we can do things in the future that might be able to, might be, a, you know, a thousand times better than what we have now. Right. Um, and also just from a, again, I mean, I'm a scientist originally, you know, so I was listening to a podcast the other day about, uh, ITER, so I-T-E-R, the, um, uh, the basically the, what they hope will be the kind of the next generation or the first generation of nuclear fusion reactor. And you know what, it, it, it's, it's overrun its costs by 4x. And I was like, not particularly shocked at that because not surprising. But you know what, they've invested 20 billion euros in it. 20 billion, that's it. I mean, the Fed buys that every day, pretty much. So, <laughs> and um, it, it's kind of, laughable in some ways that you know it, for example it's a technology that can give us almost limitless completely clean energy um, and we've literally put a few billion euros a year into it as, as a global society it's kind of pretty pathetic um, but I was also kind of thinking that um, so th that's all related to what I said before in terms of if there was such a transition then there will be such an incentive to because people say oh technology will slow down it's like well why I mean, technology is very exponential. Um, and I think of it like entropy, that there's, right. there's almost, you know, a, a, an irresistible force moving everything forward. And it, it's, you know, all we need to do is realize that that potential is there and then get out of the way, right? And that's, I think, what we're talking about with global reserve currency. It's in, in some ways, it's, it's sort of like a, it's like a drag on entropy. It, it, it's, it can slow it down because, right. of, you know, it's, 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 it's a, 
you know, it's an imposition. It's, it's, a, it's a friction. And so what we're trying to do with the, to design the best global reserve currency is to reduce that friction, to make it more of a lubricant, to allow the natural processes that are already working to work better, to, to become you know, easier to, to find the right answers, to find the right solution, to find the right, right level of productivity so that currency isn't the issue. The productivity is the issue. The, the technology is the issue. And currency is just sort of out there in the background operating in a you know, predictable, transparent fashion so that we don't really have to even think much about it. And you know, that's, you know, I think progress is, is something that's, uh, I don't know why it would stop or why it would you know, become an issue. Or you know, I think there's a lot of people out there who think you know, the industrial revolution and then the internet revolution and, and, and that's it. We don't know that, you know, progress has, we've seen the best of human progress and, uh, you know, peak oil, peak energy, peak all these other things. And I think that what they're really seeing is that the, the, the euro dollar system in particular had gone too far in one direction and it had led to so much malinvestment and waste that it starts to look like that we've reached that potential. We've reached the top and we can't go any further. And I, you know, I'm a long-term optimist. I know people think that I'm a doom and gloomer, but long-term I'm very optimistic because I really believe once we get the monetary system right, once we get it back up and working again, all these things that have been going on for quite a while that haven't been taken advantage of, well, suddenly they'll be able to be taken advantage of and it will be, you know, it'll be, it'll look like normal. It'll look like human progress didn't stop at all. It was just kind of deviated or detoured for a, a little, for quite a long while. But it was nothing more than that. It wasn't the end of progress or even the slowing down of progress. It was just that we got it. We let the monetary system and the banking system, the central banks get in the way of it. Right. And I also think that I think people don't always see the technology that, I mean, for example, we're talking for free on Zoom. Um, so if I wanted to do this 15 years ago with you, I would basically have to have had a radio show. <laughs> or own a radio station right and and i would need licenses and this and that and we'll be on the phone it will be being recorded because you know let's say it's pre-skype days like um you know we would probably have bad quality it would be like impossible to distribute we would have to pay for marketing um <laughs> and yeah you'd have to have lots of specialized equipment i mean it would be an expensive I mean, proposition nuts, right? and then yeah basically when we release this we can tweet it out to tens of thousands of people just like that and it's like, and, and, and literally it costs nothing. It's like, this is also, by the way, why the world is, there's such gigantic deflationary forces that people don't see. I mean, people forget it used to cost 20 cents to, you know, get a picture developed and it might be a really bad picture. And now you, as, as my kid does every day, you can take about a million pictures in five seconds for free. So, um, <laughs> exactly. you know, and so, you know, I think that if you had, you know, I, I like the idea of, well, I mean, you were sort of trying to redefine the second law of thermodynamics at one point, but like entropy, you know, for listeners is basically, in effect, a measure of disorder. And it, it, it always goes up. It's actually how you can measure the direction of time. Um, and um, for the physics geeks out there. And what's really interesting is, uh, I think what you're getting at is, we, we've been kind of um, hampering it. Um, and actually what we want is, you know, entropy always increases, and if, if you're holding it back, yeah, you're, you're really holding back progress of, of civilization. Um, I mean, at the end of the day, if there was, if there was the ultimate um, incentive to crack, say, nuclear fusion or build a Dyson sphere around the sun and all these crazy things, right, which, again, technically can be doable at some point, um, then 
you know, if, if people are incentivized to do that because they're actually going to be basically generating what is the, the kind of currency of the world and then can use that, um, you know, I just think of the more advanced civilization. Right. I think, you know, we're talking about, especially with entropy and progress, we're not holding, I don't, you know, I think we're delaying it. It's right, there, exactly. it's happening. If, you know, as your, your point, I think you're making, I'm sure you're making is that, look, this progress, this, this move toward decentralization using the internet, using digital technology has already happened. It's already a big part of our lives. So we have to ask ourselves, why isn't it being used in the, you know, to the fullest extent in the financial and monetary setting? It's already, have, it's already been, you know, this tremendous productivity wave, this tremendous uh, technology has already been unlocked in a lot of other areas. Why aren't we allowing it to be used in this monetary arena such that it can then reinforce all these other processes and get, you know, any progress that's been delayed in the economy back on track because it's, it's there. It just hasn't been taken advantage of because the monetary system is in the way. Right. And so I was a, so I was a venture capitalist like 10 years ago in Europe and, um, we always used to complain at the time about three sectors, which weren't being digitized very quickly. And it was health, education, and finance. Right. We're 10 years on, and you would still say those three sectors. Yeah, what? Exactly. <laughs> Nothing's changed, right? <laughs> right. Well, it's simple because they're controlled by governments. Yep. That's it. It's not controlled they, by yeah, the it's, sector. It's about who we've privileged in those areas. And in the monetary area, we're taught from the very beginning, we want central banks to be the privileged position. We want the government to be in charge of the finance because otherwise it would be chaos. It would be a mess. It would be total disarray and we'd never make any progress when that's completely Orwellian. It's backwards, right? The decentralized system is the one that works the best because it unlocks all the potential. In fact, the last dozen years actually proved that point because the more central banks have become involved in the monetary and financial system, the worse it's gotten. The farther behind we fall. And I know GDP is it's still growing. It's at a record level. But again, we have to think of these things in nonlinear terms compared to the trend that we were on before the global financial crisis in 2008. Growth hasn't been growth and it hasn't been growth since then. The more central banks intervene and try to fix something they can't, the farther behind we get. And so it's, it's the opposite. We don't want to privilege central banks. We don't want to privilege banks for that matter. Uh, we want to work toward a way that we can we can do money and finance without having those kinds of interferences hold everything back because there is a tremendous amount of potential that just hasn't been seized on yet. And I think when it does, when we get the monetary system right, we do things the right way, look out. I think it'll be really good times. Yeah, I agree. And I've, I, I talked, I did a podcast a while back about talking about the 2020s, but my point at the end was I'm, I'm so optimistic about the 2030s onwards. Like, it's like, because we, you know what, you're not going to have two people in their mid seventies running for president of the U.S. Love or hate either of them, I don't really care. The point is, is it, it's kind of crazy, and everyone else running politics in the U.S. is basically over seventy or eighty. Um, Europe's leading the charge in terms of younger people being prime ministers. Um, in France, Macron. Yeah, but has that made a difference? <laughs> well, well. I, you know, it's it's. I think you know. I think it's what we're really talking about here is is getting our heads out of the way it was done in the past and starting to move ahead and starting to think about what could be. Not what, what we used to do, but what can we do? And I think that's a mindset issue. And when it comes to you know, certain small things like the internet and you know, doing uh, things that we talked about before, you know, people are already doing that in their daily lives, but yet they still haven't come to think that 
we should be doing the same thing in the big things, you know, the quote unquote big things like politics and finance, that we need to still do them the same way that, that we've always done them because I don't know, because I don't think about it, right? And so that's, that's a, we, need to, we need a really a change in mindset to stop thinking about the way things have been done and start thinking about the way that things could be done. But the overall point is, you know, 2030s could, should be really, really good, but what does the 2020s look like that gets us to that state? How do we get from where we are now to where we want to be? Is it, a, is it tremendous upheaval and turmoil and God forbid war or something like that? Or can we get enough people, can we get enough critical mass of people thinking ahead to what could be to, 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 to you know, create a bottom-up approach that actually works before the whole thing breaks down? You know, I think that's one of the themes of Neil Howe's fourth turning is that, look, we ha- it's, 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 you know, it's not something to be feared. It's, something, it's an opportunity. It's a way to, hey, the old, shed the old way of doing things and start moving on to the new way of doing things but to do it before the bad stuff, the transition is a, the worst kind of transition. And that's really the, the question for the 2020s is there's going to be a transition, but what kind of transition will it be? Yeah. One way I thought of it was, this is going to kind of slightly tongue in cheek, but you know, what one day we're going to contact another civilization, call them aliens, whatever. It doesn't matter one day. And it might be in a thousand years or 10,000 years, or it might be tomorrow. We don't know. But what I would love is first, when we do, right now, if it happened, it would be pretty embarrassing. Um, because if, if they say come to us, they're more advanced than us by definition. And you know, they probably wouldn't want to harm us because what's the point? If you're so far ahead of someone, it doesn't really matter. Um, but it would just sort of be embarrassing right now. You know, we have, um, even if we just take health, education and finance, I mean, just health alone. Um, the fact that we don't, that data is not shared in a way that you know, could, could absolutely revolutionize how a lot of diseases are treated because of privacy. And we haven't worked out ways around it because of politics and, um, you know, this kind of funny fiat money. Um, and, um, you know, it's, um, so, yeah, it would be, um, I'd love for us not to be able to, for us not to embarrass ourselves when, whenever the green men come. So. The green, yeah. Who was that? You know, you talk about aliens. It, it, to me, my mind always goes to, uh, who was the physicist that called it the great silence? Um, oh, I can't remember. Uh, damn. Um, There's a I, physicist, one of the, one of the, you know, I think they were the part of the, uh, the, the Solvay conference who talked about the great silence. In fact, that we haven't heard from civilizations, you know, if, if a civilization's 50 million years advanced, why haven't they contacted us before now? <laughs> kind of a thing. And is it because they're, they, maybe they have, and they're, they look at humanity and say, Boy, you guys really shoot yourselves in the foot a lot, <laughs> you know, something like that. It's, it's, but to your point, I think that's, that's really the issue is, you know, we have, we have a way of doing things that I don't think most people have ever really thought about. Why are we doing things this way other than the fact that it's, this is the way we've always done things. And it's, it's, you know, that kind of, a, that kind of thinking is the impediment more than actually central bankers and governments. It's just that we, we allow these things to happen. We allow central bankers and governments to do these things because, because we do, you know, it's really, it's, it's really inertia. It's really, it's changing our mindset to, Hey, the world has changed. And in a lot of ways it's changed very rapidly and it's already changed in our daily lives. We just need to do the same things in these other areas so that we can do, we can accomplish what we really need the, the system quote unquote for, for lack of better term to be able to let us do our 
what all the good things that we need to have done. Yeah, no, totally agree. Um, and I was just wondering when, what did you think of, so Mark Carney and I think, was it Jackson Hole 2019? I, I think it was 19, but when he, when he sort of shocked all the US bankers by saying, you know, the world's kind of pretty sick with the US hegemony here and, um, you know, people should be much more innovative in, 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 you know, in terms of thinking about digital currencies and this type of stuff. And, and he was still governor of the Bank of England at the time, but he was just about to leave. Um, I actually think that was a kind of a, and it was written about a little bit in the mainstream media and stuff. But um, for me, that was actually kind of a very interesting moment. Um, the first time one of the insiders, and admittedly he was about to not be an insider, um, kind of um, spoke up a bit more. And like China did many years ago when they were talking about the SDRs and stuff. And um, But I guess it's still, the problem is this is all coming from the kind of top down. Um, and um, Well, as you mentioned, they only say these things on their way out the door. Yeah. You know, Bill Dudley, <laughs> well, for example. He wanted a nice job somewhere, so yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, why didn't you say that when you started? You know, Bill Dudley, for example, it's a perfect example for me. The guy retired, I think it was last year, and he said, oh, by the way, these DSGE models that we've been using the, to, to help us forecast how things work, we don't even, we don't even include the financial system in them. You know, I mean, it's like, <laughs> why didn't you say that in 2008 as everything was breaking down? Oh, you know, the financial system is breaking down. We don't even use that in our monetary policy setting. You know? Why do you have to admit that when you're on your way out the door? Number one, that's a problem. And again, it gets to institutional inertia. There's, there's a corruption in the, in the top-down mindset. There's a corruption in the, in the official mindset that prioritizes the, the status quo above everything. And I think what Mark Carney was getting at was essentially that. It's like, look, there's, there's some benefit to the status quo, but we have to realize that it's not really working. And that's, again, the Chinese point, too. You know, Zhao Zhuishan back in 2009 said, you know, the reserve currency system is, this is a kind of an odd arrangement. We've never really had a bank-centered system before. And here we are seeing it break down. So maybe we should start thinking about doing something else. And again, this is, you know, 2009. And everybody said, oh, he's attacking America. Again, that's, that's not what he was saying. It's not, you know, when you talk about the U.S. dollar, especially people get, especially people in America get kind of, uh, sensitive about it as if we're being attacked. You know, the Chinese are attacking America by saying that, you know, they, we need to replace the dollar. And that's not really true. And the other thing we need to understand, especially people in, inside the United States, is that, look, if we change the euro dollar system to something that works, that's not going to be a bad thing for the United States. It's going to be a good thing for the U.S. and everyone else because it's going to get us back on track to actual growth. And so, Again, it's a mindset, the dollar, oh, dollar keeps America in its special place. And if we get rid of the dollar, America's gonna immediately become a third world country. And it's just not true. And once we start thinking about things differently, thinking about things the way they are and the way they could be, and really the way they should be, then we start to realize that the global reserve currency, I know as you started out calling it a weapon, it's actually a weapon pointed inward at everybody else. You know, it's a weapon that, uh, that's been more destructive than beneficial to anybody, including the United States. And so get rid of that mindset, get rid of that way of thinking, start thinking about what could be, it would be a benefit to everybody, the entire world. Get the, you know, the, when we stop talking about central bankers, when we stop thinking about what they think, we stop even thinking about money itself because it's just a predictable, transparent process. We start thinking about all the good things that are out there and be able to take advantage of them. You'll see that that the uh, euro dollar system and the, and the dollar as a reserve currency has been a big burden. A burden not just for every, not just for foreigners, but for the United States too. 
Yeah, exactly. Actually, one interesting thought I just had was, you know, these central bank digital currencies, which, I mean, China is by far the most advanced. I mean, it's, it is actually being tested already in several, or just north of Hong Kong, for example, in Shenzhen, Guangzhou, uh, and in other parts. Um, but I mean, you know, the ECB has made it pretty clear um, <laughs> what they're, um, you know, th this is going to come. We know the Fed's been looking at it, but again, I don't know how far along they are. Australia, UK, lots of places. And what's interesting is, you know, if you take Richard Werner's argument that if we have these central bank digital currencies and I get that we log into our account now and we see digital dollars and stuff. Sure. I understand that. But like the point is, is if the, if the regulators like the fed and other people around the world have, have these current, have these, um, we all have accounts of them and in effect are competing against the banks. Well then the regulated um, are being competed by the people that regulate them which there's only one winner in that. And you end up basically bank, banking goes. Um, but what's interesting with that is that that is a potential catalyst to what we were talking about with how then a kind of a blockchain-based system can get into it. Now, these central bank digital currencies will not be based on blockchain, right? So the Bitcoiners out there don't get too excited. They're going to be centralized databases. The one in China is a centralized database. But it could be interesting and it could start to actually change the pipes of, of the actual banking system. And it seems like the cat's out of the bag. This is sort of going to happen. Um, so, yeah, you never know that it, it could end up going a very different way than they think, um, which would be awesome if it was kind of this organic movement that, um, you know, and then yeah, ironically, kind of snakes let eating the, its own tail. <laughs> yep, the best, let the best ideas win. That's what I say. You know, look, and then you're right. I think the cat is already out of the bag, not just central banks and not just governments, but I think more so the private banking system. Because I think the banks realize that what they're really looking at is their, their own self-destruction. As I said before, blockchain technology could completely replicate the entire, the entire business model of a bank. So that's also, that's also a, you know, it's a double-edged sword. The banking system is looking to get ahead of digital currencies because they need to find a way to, to, to add value to them to stay in business. And what if they don't add value? And what are they gonna do then? Well, they're gonna resist that trend and they're going to get central bankers to resist on their behalf, which I believe is what most central banks are doing, is how do we use digital currency in a half-assed way that we can introduce the idea because it's coming anyway, but also make it more look, look more like the status quo than not. And I think a lot of central bankers' digital currencies ideas are really not the digital currency idea that you and I think are have in mind, the decentralized you know, ledger portions of things like that. I think the digital currency that a, the Federal Reserve would prefer is something like they're already talking about, like reserved uh, uh, currency system. Nothing more than a paper currency, just in digital format. It's not really the, the same kind of categorical change that I think that we want to see. And so that's, you know, again, it's a double-edged sword. Yes, they realize that this thing is coming and it's gonna be an important part of the, the, the dynamic of the world, but yet I'm not really sure they're really willing to embrace all of the positive aspects of it because again, they're stuck in the previous mindset where we, well, we just need to update the way we do things, you know, a, a different, you know, add, a, add a, a new software patch to the way that we, we run things now. And that's really not what we're talking about. We, want, we right. want digital currencies and we want digital blockchain in particular to be a categorical shift into something brand new, something brand new and hopefully better. Right. No, I, I fully agree on that. I guess my point was that by them releasing these things and i'm calling them things we don't fully know what they will be yet um, i don't think they know either right <laughs> right well sure well i think they do in china because it's actually being used but anyway whatever the point is is like it 
you could launch something it, it will if you know i i see banks like the airlines like the airlines all you see on twitter right now is oh we need bailouts it's like why like people are going to fly with different patterns now there will be less flying there's no way you know and there may be people listening that work in the airline industry well it's not going to go back to normal even if there's a vaccine tomorrow people now use zoom more people do whatever like they're not going to need to travel so much like so they have to change, not get like bailed out. And ultimately the banks, um, whether central banks ultimately compete with them or not, uh, I guess my point was like, you know, may, may, maybe they can just get us that little bit closer to that kind of tipping point. Um, and, and maybe inadvertently, um, because they've actually started to try and shake up the system. Um, and, and, you know, sometimes you do that, it doesn't actually end up how you want it to end up. Um, but, um, We'll yeah, you know, I think it's that might be the the real real part that they 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 get involved here. The real the real contribution might just be that hey, it gets people to start thinking of something new, maybe just maybe as sort of a confirmation that hey, we we have to do a new we have to do something new because the old way really isn't working, and then it kind of goes from there. But your point about the airlines is a good one too because the banking system, contrary to I think popular perception. This has not been a good decade for banks. In fact, most global banks have been shrinking. Again, linear terms, but even in outright absolute terms, banks are smaller than they've ever been. Oh, and that's really the reason why we have a currency shortage, a global dollar shortage. Well, is, outside the US has been awful, right? Absolutely. It's worse, yeah, exactly. Especially European banks and other places. The banking, the banking sector has been absolutely decimated. And so, yeah, I think the reason they're, they're looking ahead to embrace digital technology is to maybe how do we make ourselves relevant again? How do we get ourselves back into the growth part? Uh, you know, how do we back into a growth mode as essential ingredient to the econo economic system overall? And what I'm saying is I think, you know, the realization is we don't want them to, we don't want banks to be, go back to the way things were 10 and 20 years ago when they were in integral to globalization and everything else. We want the monetary system to be outside of the banking system. We don't want to bail them out because they're, they're essentially dinosaurs. They're hydrants. They're the right. impediment. And, and okay, so I mean, one way to think of it is can a bank like JP Morgan do a Netflix? So people forget, and younger people won't even know <laughs> that when Netflix started, it mailed you DVDs and it didn't have a streaming service because bandwidth didn't allow for it. Um, and actually, uh, Reed Hastings, in effect, split the company sort of into. He had two executive teams, both reporting to him. One was the digital team. And the digital team's mission was to crush the legacy team. And this wouldn't go down too well if you're on the legacy team. But of course, long story short, the digital team did crush the legacy, crush the legacy team. And, um, and why? Well, technology evolved. And I just, I, you know, maybe there's some banks trying to think like this, but it, it it's a very special type of leader that can you know, make that change happen. Um, you know, very, very few companies have ever managed to, but I think it's actually a pretty good analogy. It is a great analogy because that's exactly what we're talking about. Banks to stay relevant, they're going to have to reinvent themselves. And, they, and hopefully in thinking about how they reinvent themselves, they, they come up with something that's really good and positive. And they're not just trying to resist change because, you know, they like to like, the, like the position that they're in now even though it's been a bad decade for them, they're at least at the top of the monetary food chain, right? That they have a special privilege that they've been afforded and they don't really want to give it up. So it really will be a difficult position for somebody to say, hey, we need to think ahead about how we can do this banking very different, completely radically different 
in the same way that Netflix did. And you're, I think that's an absolutely perfect analogy. And you know, you look out there, at least you know what we know publicly, I'm not sure there's anybody yet who's willing to, to do that, to say, look, we need to rethink this, the, the entire bank money model from the very ground up and start working on it in that way. Um, and it, it may be we're just, you know, maybe that is happening somewhere and we just don't know about it. Um, I'm skeptical. <laughs> I still, I think that banks are, have become more political animals than anything else. And they're, they're more interested in preserving their place at the trough but, than anything. Right. So, but you know uh, one thing? That person has been born. Like the person exists that will do this first. It was so my episode with Raul the other day, like his point was like, look, if you're in your twenties, thirties now, what a wonderful time. Like, yep. you know, yep. if you're 55 and a restaurant owner in New York, what a really bad time. But if you're young and you have good ideas and you want to be an entrepreneur and try and do cool stuff, build the next bank, take down JP Morgan. I mean, Google and Facebook destroyed the, the, not just, I mean, how many industries? <laughs> like the entire newspaper industry. Yeah, um, publishing, advertising. Everything, yeah, exactly. Everything, right? So it's like, now, of course, people... That's it, yeah, I think that the point of our podcast, right? Here, what we're discussing here is everything is on the table. We're at one of those points in history where, you know, inflections to people who use, you know, older people like myself, that these things kind of sound scary. But to younger world, you need the only word that needs to come into your mind to younger people is opportunity because it's there. I mean, all we need to do to take advantage of it is get rid of the things that are in the way of it. Cause it's already happening, like entropy. It's, it's, it's already happening. It's, it's, it's pushing the world forward. We just, you know, we've gotten into a detour where we spent too much time and energy focusing on the wrong things for the wrong way, for the wrong reasons. And, you know, I, I think you're right. The person who's going to come up with the way to reinvent the banking system Maybe that maybe that's already maybe we don't even need that person. Maybe that the you know blockchain technology by itself, we just need somebody to apply it into a, a specific situation in a specific way, that it becomes self fulfilling prophecy. Right, and um, I actually think, and I've been criticised before by saying you know I believe in the like democracy and the ballot box and all this stuff, and but my I think people misconstrue me sometimes because my my point's been that as younger people are taking over, well, basically Gen Xs and Millennials, well, not Gen Xs, sorry, not Gen Zs yet, but Millennials are absolutely prime ministers of countries already uh, and in cabinets. And these are people who are absolutely natively digital. Um, and these are people who are much more likely to, to rip up the old. You know, they've been in effect pretty screwed by the boomer generation in terms of wealth. Um, and why on earth are they not going to try and change things? Um, I mean, they're, they're, I think they're going to, fight for their generation and you know traditionally politicians have used regulations and things like this to kind of prevent uh progress like you know where it's very hard to be a small bank in most countries in fact they just don't exist in a lot of countries yeah it's basically impossible right. nowadays and that you know so anyways but um and also well no, I think yeah we'll i think you know that's the point really is that you know we're at this point particular you know you, i don't want to say it's unique because these these periods in history happen i mean think it's it's like being it's being born at the age, the dawn of the printing press for example that's yeah. exactly what's happened i mean the internet has has revolutionized the way human society functions in the same way that that printing press did you know decentralizing information and power and in all these things but you know we still haven't we haven't completely taken the full step that it that 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 kind of technology has unlocked and one of the reasons as you pointed out is that you know, people who have a lot at stake, you have a lot to lose 
in the old way of doing things are always going to resist. But, you know, people who have been, as you said, native technology, native internet, native, you know, virtual, they're, they, they see things differently because things are different. And it's really about getting our mindset into, hey, there's an opportunity here to, to do things differently because there's really, you know, doing things differently isn't inherently a, a bad thing. Yeah. Okay, cool. And I just thought as a final thing, I thought a slightly more lighthearted thing. Um, for those who are very unconvinced about this whole energy thing, I wanted to just make the point that if you have enough energy, you can actually control time. You can control space time. And Einstein taught us this. So if ultimately, so the actual ultimate currency is probably time. And it's the one thing we always wish we could get more of. Um, and we don't know ways. Um, so, you know, if you, if you ultimately want to be able to control time, then you should be absolutely behind like energy as a currency because it will force us to uh, harness the energy of black holes and all sorts of super awesome stuff. Um, and by the way, the physics of all this is absolutely known and is, is not particularly controversial. Um, I, I'm not saying we can do this practically tomorrow, but. Um, so. yeah, didn't Einstein also say gravity was a function of time? Or at least he, he, sur he surmised that that was probably the case. Well, the time is really the time and entropy that they were really the essence of the universe. Yeah. So, I mean, the, I mean, in general relativity, yeah, I mean, basically that's what general relativity does is, is, is it puts um, basically gravity into the whole concept of space time. Um, and so his point was that you can't think of time and space independently. It's, it's space time. Right. And it, you can't think of the three dimensions of space and one of time it's actually a four-dimensional kind of world um and in effect mass bends that um but um but the point is if you had enough energy you can um you can bend space time and then um in a way that your time would slow down versus other people so in effect if you had a twin uh, you would be aging slower than them if they so you in effect would be getting more time so but but we've never worked out a way to go back in time and that's because of the good old second law of thermodynamics we yeah. We haven't worked that one out. So. Um, maybe we will. <laughs> maybe we just need podcast. the currency to do it, right? <laughs> we, yeah. we just lack the money. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, maybe some things money definitely can't buy. I don't know. Uh, well, yeah. I don't know. I haven't seen that yet. Um, maybe that's a, maybe that's a, we're thinking too far down the road. But, but for those who are interested in the physics stuff, a few months ago, I did a primer on quantum mechanics and one on general relativity. So they're kind of podcast number six and seven, something like that. Um, and um, they're really for the interested layman. And I kind of go through all the kind of core concepts of both. So they're kind of quite fun if, if that stuff interests you. But there's so much stuff on YouTube that's awesome for that as well. Well, Jeff, it's been super interesting. I think maybe we call it a day there. Um, we've solved okay. everything. So... Yeah, I know we've got we've got everything written down and we know what we're doing. It's just a how do we get it done? We just get Trump to tweet it tomorrow. US dollars done. Yeah. <laughs> Is that all but it actually, takes? you know what? With what he's tweeting at the moment, he might. <laughs> yeah, he's we're <laughs> listening in our conversation already. Well look, I mean I think that's you know, I think there's again the, to reinforce the message, final thought is opportunity. We're we're at I know it's you know what are the twenties going to look like, but the thirties are, are really there for us to take advantage of it. It's really, how do we get from A to B? I think it's a perfect way to sum it up. So Jeff, what's the best way for people to find out more about you? Is it, is it Twitter? Um, and you also, I know, um, publish a lot of um, 
research as well. So. Yeah, pretty much everything I write goes to our website, which is alhambrapartners.com. Again, I'm the head of global research for Alhambra Investments, which is a registered investment advisor in the United States. And a lot of stuff, I, you know, gets syndicated through the internet. I do podcasts and all sorts of other things. But most of everything I do is at alhambrapartners.com. And we're also working at something called Eurodollar University, which intends to fill in the gaps of, you know, this monetary system that has evolved for the more than half a century, yet hardly anybody knows about it. And it's really, you know, how does a global currency work? How does this global currency system work? And what does it mean for you and, and for people you know? Yeah, and as I said at the beginning, I would thoroughly recommend everyone listens to that. I think I, I love how at the beginning of every episode, Emil is always trying to kind of wind Jeff up in some way. It's kind of hilarious. Um, <laughs> yeah, he does. That. I am, didn't he? <laughs> um, and, um, no, but it's absolutely, you know, it's every week and it's about an hour every week. And um, it's always a super interesting topic. So thoroughly recommend that. Well, thanks very much, Jeff. Let's leave it there. So. Okay, thanks, Chris.